In this episode of Between the Lines, Michael Walcock, lead social scientist in the World Bank's Development Research Group, interviews Professor Maritz Tadros, a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies. Maritz is editor of the book, What About Us? Global Perspectives on Redressing Religious Inequalities. Produced by the IDS-led project, Coalition Religious Equality and Inclusive Development, Creed, the book explores how we can make religious equality a reality for those on the margins of society and politics. This book is about the individual and collective struggles of the religiously marginalized to be recognized and their inequalities, religious or otherwise redressed. It is also about the efforts of civil society, governments, multilateral actors and scholars to promote freedom of religion or belief, FORB, whatever shape they take. This podcast is essential listing for all studying and researching religious inequalities. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Wilcock, and today we're going to be talking with Maurice Tedros about a new book that she's just done for as part of her work with the, the Creed Initiative here at the University of Sussex. So we're just going to frame our conversation by uh, having Maurice talk a little bit about the Creed Initiative, and then we'll go into the book and unpack some of the details and some of the key messages that emerge from that, and hopefully have uh, an interesting discussion about the various different ideas and the various different examples and the implications that might emerge from that. So it's great to be here with you, Maurice. It's nice to be back at, at IDS for, for a conversation like this. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Creed is, what it does, and what it cares about, and why the rest of us should do the same. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to have you here with us at IDS. The Coalition for Religious Equality and Inclusive Development, Creed, was established with the idea that we will bring the experiences of people who are socioeconomically excluded, but who also happen to be on the margins because of their faith, whether they practice it or not, and whether they have a faith or not, but there's something about them that has led to their otherization. And by otherization, we mean that people see them, that their difference in, in, in what they believe in or they think they believe in means that they have been subject to either discrimination or targeting, and sometimes in extreme cases, crimes against humanity. So we wanted to bring the experiences of these people on the margins to what we know about people who care about social justice, people who care about transformative development, people who care about a more inclusive society. And we did this through a very exciting approach, which has been a part and parcel of development work for a long time, which is action research, which is that we accompany our partners overseas, and we hope in future in um, the UK and Europe as well, as they work alongside um, the communities to see what the communities think are the best approaches to redress these inequalities that they have experienced because they happen to be among the religiously marginalized. And as we accompany them, um, they document their own experiences. Our partners are the ones that do the research and tell us what's going on bit by bit. And as we accompany them, we learn about what happens when you seek to counter hate speech? What is effective when young people uh, seek to address this? What happens when you seek to reform educational curricula and so forth? And Creed is a consortium. It's comprised of uh, faith and non-faith uh, based partners. Um, it's convened here but, uh, by IDS, by myself as director, but we have Minority Rights Group, which is a human rights based organization. We have Al-Ho'i, which is a Muslim a faith based organization. We have Rifsemi, 
which is uh, a Middle Eastern um, Christian-based organization. And then we have about 40 to 50 partners who comprise youth movements of faith and no faith, um, development organizations, and a wide array of academic partners as well. You've written this book called, oh, you've edited this book, I should say, called What About Us? Global Perspectives on Redressing Religious Inequalities. What's it about? Why should I read it? Well, if you are interested in understanding through the perspectives of people who are living at that intersection of poverty and religious marginality, what's it like for them? How do they experience day-to-day -day life? Um, and what's it like for them when they seek to challenge those systems, um, those daily realities and the people behind them who have created those um, forms of prejudice and discrimination? Um, what do these struggles look like? Um, who leads them? What language do they use? What modalities of collective action do they, um, do they choose for their struggles? And what, 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 what do these struggles end up look? I'm sorry, what do these struggles end up looking like? And if you're interested in education, there's a bit there on education. If you're interested in health, there's a bit there on health. If you're inter interested in indigenous movements, there's a bit on that. If you're interested in affirmative action, and what does it mean when it's used not for women, but for people who are of different religious um, uh, affiliations, there's there as well. If you're interested in what does it mean for external actors to try and tinker with systems um, to try and redress that, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of that as well. So the idea is that there's a bit of everything for everyone. <laughs> um, if you are interested in understanding these realities, but also this is not just a doom and gloom book. This is a book about when people try and change those realities. What do these pathways of change look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was reading it myself, and obviously I have read it because I blurbed your book and <laughs> said nice things about it. But I, you take us to South Africa, to Uganda, India, Nigeria, a whole bunch of different places. Um, so you just told us sort of the big picture uh, and sectoral issues around which these issues can start to be apparent. Just take us to a couple of places and, and help, help us to do that feeling work, that empathetic uh, engagement with our human brothers and sisters around the world who are, who are suffering enormously purely because of the, the particular identity that has been either been cast upon them or that they themselves proudly have. Uh, what does this look like and feel like for, the, for these very specific groups of people that you're writing about? Well, let's go to Uganda, where the uh, people of Bamba and Bakonju um, have lived for a very long time um, in sacred mountains and um, in the belief uh, that uh, uh, we need to promote sustainable development, that means protecting the environment, the Uganda Wildlife Authority comes in and forbids them to have access to particular territories in these mountains um, with the idea that these people are undermining the environment. Can you imagine you are an indigenous people, you've lived on those mountains for a very long time. Um, you have actually been the guardians of the flora and fauna. And then people come in and tell you, hold on, sustainable development is cool. Uh, your presence is a threat to sustainable development. Uh, we need you out. Um, and what this wonderful chapter shows us is, Actually, uh, the Bamba and the Bakonju people were key to the protection of the environment because their sacred um, 
what they hold sacred in their, in their norms and beliefs and daily practices actually protects the flora and fauna. But it's that the Wildlife Authority didn't recognize this until, um, until a wonderful group of um, activists and scholars sought to mediate and, and get them to understand they're not a threat to the environment. It is through their practice of what they hold sacred, the way they engage with uh, trees, the way they engage with the flora and fauna, that is what protects the environment. And it's a wonderful story of that sustainable development doesn't need to be exclusionary development. That sustainable development doesn't need um, to think that um, uh, what people hold sacred can necessarily be a threat uh, to the environment. And um, I think it tells us you can't talk about climate justice, climate justice as in um, being aware of how climate change has affected those on the margins, unless you also uh, are aware of what people hold sacred, what they hold as important, and how these can be important repertoires for, um, for bringing about not just sustainable development, but inclusive development. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think one of the nice themes that your, your the Creed program in general, but this book also highlights, is this I, the, the fancy social scientific world is sort of this, the syncretic nature of religion, the way that people beg, borrow, and steal, as it were, different components of different religious repertoires and, and sort of combine them quilt-like into their own unique combination of, of religious identity, religious practice, religious apprehension of the world. Uh, and I can imagine that that's sort of sometimes a defensive strategy to perhaps sort of distance yourself a bit from what might be obviously then make you targetable to others, but can also be an incredibly uh, proactive and creative way of, of what humans have always done, which is just is to figure out what works for them. And now the, the smorgasbord, is, as it were, of, of options available to, to most people around the world, not everyone, obviously, but for many people is just is so vast. So can you just talk a little bit about that, the synchronicity <laughs> to as a sting or whoever wrote this, it was talking about all that kind of stuff. Like what, when we get into the space of not just religion, religion and the inequitable aspects of all of that, do we see this syncretic uh, behavior, these syncretic practices as, uh, as a response to their inequality or a sort of proactive choice around just how they can be uh, faithfully, authentically representing themselves and, their, and their, the ways in which they then make sense of what happens to them. Michael, I'm so grateful for your question because you brilliantly asked about people's experiences people's practices, people's worldviews. And that's what we have been doing. And we've been battling those that think that the program and the book is about defending religion. Because once we start talking about defending religion, we automatically get into questions of doctrine, questions of ideology, question of, questions of what faith leaders, which tend to be in a most of the time in a fairly privileged position. Of course, there are faith leaders that are severely persecuted, but I'm talking about in relation to the majority of the population that tend to suffer from po poverty as well as political exclusion. Um, and we've always been saying this program is not about defending religions because that is not the phenomenon that we are looking at. We are looking at people's daily practices and their agency. And by agency, it's exactly as you said, 
It's about the way they see the world and experience the world. One of the wonderful examples from the chapter from India uh, written by Shah and Shah is of um, a woman who said that she believed in the power of St. Anthony to heal her sick children, but she belonged to the Hindu faith and occasionally she visited Sufi shrines. And it tells us that um, this, the experiences of these women is that unlike uh, people who look at religion as an, a body of doctrine that they must faithfully follow, that her experience is about relationships, it's about where her, her emotions lie, it's about her needs, it's about her sense of uh, where she feels being drawn and where she feels being pulled. And what explains this? Um, what explains this is probably she has neighbors who go visit shrines, um, that she has come across um, her personal experiences of interceding to saints and that it has made sense in her life. Um, it also comes from um, her day-to-day -day interactions uh, with uh, others who, so it, it is a combination of factors. And we are trying to say that this is so enmeshed in um, the economic realities, in the social realities. This is not about faith as for Sunday or Saturday or Friday. <laughs> this is not about, this is about how that religious agency comes to influence and affect um, her day-to-day -day experiences in the market, her day-to-day -day experiences with ill health, with education, with everything. Mm. Um, and we're not romanticizing this. We're not <laughs> saying that in her expression of religious agency, there is a magic bullet um, <laughs> to all her suffering, because there isn't, because she continues to suffer extreme poverty, she continues to suffer um, marginalization, and she continues um, um, to uh, experience homogenization. And I think this is where what this program um, and this book is about, is we're saying that despite the plethora of different experiences, historical as well as contextual of inequalities um, in these very vastly different contexts, Uganda, South Africa, Nigeria, Israel, yes. Sudan, Pakistan, <laughs> India, despite this massive diversity, there is one thing which these collective struggles is telling us, warning us against, which is any actor um, be it a state actor or a non-state actor, which seeks to homogenize a population. And by homogenize, it's saying my way or the highway when it comes to what you believe or you don't believe in. And for example, going back to the uh, woman who uh, believes in the power of St. Anthony, uh, but then uh, belongs to the Hindu faith and may be visiting temples, Hindu temples, but then can also visit Sufi shrines. Um, uh, if we look at the Hindutva political ideology in India, and um, even though she is uh, a, a Hindu from a Dalit background, they may say to her, uh-uh, what you're doing is unacceptable. You need to follow these gods and goddesses. Anything else is unacceptable. And unless you worship with our ways, you are not going to be seen as an authentic Hindu. And so what we're saying is that religious inequalities is about protecting everybody's right to exercise their agency in whatever way they wish, whether they are from the majority or from the minority, whether they have a faith or no faith. And that's what we need to start protecting because to be honest, in development, this has been a major blind spot and we have done a terrible job of recognizing uh, the experiences of people's inequalities when they don't follow the line um, of those that have the power to try and force them to toe the line. Mm -hmm.
yeah, as an extension of that, I think social science is itself complicit in a lot of that when it, when it provides only or allows only very particular measurement instruments to be engaged in a serious analysis of what counts as a question and what counts as an answer in that space. So if I insist on data that comes out of a survey, for example, <laughs> Uh, data from a survey requires you to be in a singular box, more or less. So this, this woman you just described from India, what is she? Like how, my regression model requires me to, to code her in one particular way. And you're telling us in the world <laughs> that yeah, she's, she's many different things and she's very comfortable with being many different things. And that's that should be a problem for social science to apprehend, not the other way around. <laughs> I think that, I, that since we haven't yet touched on this issue, I think I, let me also say that I think from my own personal experience of being at the two big gatherings that you've hosted on this, what's truly remarkable, even move, moving to me uh, when I've been in these gatherings is seeing, when I look around at the audience, this sort of who's uh, a potpourri of, of, of religious diversity, Hasidic Jews and Mormons, <laughs> Uh, evangelical Christian, the whole array of, of, of religious. And then an atheist will stand up and talk about the awfulness of being discriminated against for being an atheist in a particular country and gets not a standing ovation necessarily, but a very round warm of applause. And I get misty eyed when I hear that thing. Is there any gathering in the world where that guy or woman can stand up in front of an audience like this and unilaterally, universally, be acknowledged that, okay, we, we, we're kind of poles apart in many respects around how we apprehend or even allow the existence of the sacred and the divine. But the one thing we all agree on is that you should not be discriminated against because you don't happen to share that. I think you, that's, this is my sort of joy and, and, and delight in being part of the Korean group is that, is, is that you, is there any other gathering in the world that can claim that they've pulled that off. They found maybe this one nugget around which humanity itself almost in this world is otherwise so contested and so unable so often to have a common conversation around all these really hard questions and wants it to be collapsed either theologically, collapsed either social scientifically, collapsed from a policy point of view, from targeting reasons or for even for proactive, uh, progressive reasons of trying to compensate for certain deprivations all of that difference just gets so is so inflammable <laughs> it's so combustible it can you can blow out so easily and yet in that space we in the space you guys have created the space you've created i think i emphasize that it's uh people feel okay talking about that stuff and you can have a panel of six people on a stage that that, that can talk very earnestly about their own not just their faith tradition, their the idiosyncrasies of their own uh, apprehension of, of the divine. And it's okay to have the fourth speaker say, well, I actually don't, that's not how I apprehend the world at all. But that's all right, I just don't feel the sacred. It just doesn't happen for me. And doesn't sort of get booed off stage or just ignored. And so, no, but, but when you get discriminated against for believing that, man, that's just awful. You know, <laughs> like, wow, that's, we've got this faith. So in, in this book, in the, in the broader um array of work that Creed has done. How, how have you guys sort of uh, experienced how to write this up and how to talk to the rest of the world uh, about this form of inequality when it manifests itself in atheism, in, in a non-religious space, but it's a belief system, a coherent belief system uh, adhered to by 
many millions of people. <laughs> uh, what what does what does your program have to say for those people in those in those particular moments? It's not the atheism per se; it's the atheism against which you get discriminated because you hold proudly and loudly to that particular stance. What what, it, what does creed research have to say, or the or the implications of your broader an emergent still framing of this of this whole work program. What, what does it have to say to those that are in a very different belief space, as it were, but and it's not religious, it's but it's a belief system nonetheless. This is a great question because this is one of the key findings, or one of the key things that we hold uh, daily to our hearts and to what uh, brings us together as a program that has so many partners around the world, which is that uh, we fundamentally believe that any ideology, any political movement, any political force, any social um, block or cluster movement that seeks to homogenize a society is a danger for everyone. It is a danger for religious minorities. It is a danger for members of the majority who uh, practice their faith in ways that the uh, those in power don't like. It's a danger for atheists and humanists because uh, uh, even if their identity card says they belong to a majority, because they're not practicing, they will be targeted. Um, it is a danger for artists. Um, mm. It is a danger for journalists. It's a danger for women. It is a danger for everyone who does not follow a straight jacketed um, lens onto the world. And I think this is where all of us uniting against any political or social force that seeks to homogenize us, that seeks to um, narrow our vision of who we are, what we can be, what we can do. That is what we all must unite against. Um, and it's, so it's not about defending a particular um, religious regime or against a regime, it's, it's, it's actually taking a stance against any political force, whether in power or not in power that seeks, that comes with a homogenizing project. But there's something else that unites us, which is the fact that we see the world through the experiences of people who have been marginalized because of poverty. And we know that um, if you are uh, the son or daughter of an atheist family and you happen to live in poverty and uh, you happen to blurt out in class something that they don't like and because you are um, from a socioeconomically excluded group, you are poor, uh, you are likely to face a lot more violence, you are likely uh, to be accused of blasphemy much quicker than if you are in a private international school where yes, the stakes are high, but at least you have a good lawyer, you can leave the country quickly, uh, you won't struggle to be given a visa, et cetera, et cetera. So the intersection of how socioeconomic exclusion affects your experiences of marginalization because of what uh, you believe in or you don't believe in become so much more accentuated when, when, when there is that uh, uh, intertwining of poverty, uh, uh, political exclusion, uh, but also marginality or marginality on the basis of faith or no faith. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, that, that just makes us see the world so differently because um, I don't think anyone um, can defend, or I hope there isn't, anyone can, can, can defend poor people's right to education, to health, uh, to living a decent life. And I, I hope that there isn't anyone who can say, well, um, when you are on the margins because of what you believe, those experiences aren't accentuated 100 times over. Mm -hmm. Let's just unpack this inequality theme a little bit more. I think when 
normal social science, for want of a better term, <laughs> engages with economic inequality. For example, we have very familiar indexes, indices that we can use, the, the Gini coefficients and others yes. that are just looking at uh, cumulative distribution functions over the course of people's income in a society and why some people have more and some have less. And you can do all sorts of nice econometric work with all of that. And, and just people's lived experiences, at least in the class dimension, is, is pretty clear that some people have super yachts and some people are really are homeless. They really struggle. So that level of inequality just as a material reality and then a, a corresponding recognition that a good percentage of the people in the super yachts probably didn't come by their money in a nice, open and honest way. And a lot of people are sleeping on the streets are there for reasons vastly beyond their own control. And I, I, think, I like to think that most people kind of understand that in, intuitively, but then I guess the social scientific task is to say, what are the consequences for all of that with regards to other human welfare outcomes and the provision of, of public goods in society where in an increasingly integrated world, those public goods and the provision of them reliably affordably to everyone becomes really crucial for sustaining the welfare of all. So what's different about religious inequality when we start talking or belief systems more generally when, when there's inequality in that particular dimension, just help us sort of get a sense of uh, how that either amplifies or is similar to or different from sort of the more familiar forms of inequality that we might, we might have in our lived experience. Well, let me take an example from um, the book, from the chapter uh, uh, from Pakistan, which looks at how inequalities play out in the province of Sindh in Pakistan. The province of Sindh um, has an exceptionally high poverty rate, um, but it also has a high concentration of religious minorities in Pakistan, um, the largest of which is the Hindu population, but then followed by the Christian population. And that chapter looks very powerfully at when a discourse is about inclusion, that it was talking about the World uh, Bank's poverty program as seeking to be inclusive. And they sought to be inclusive by recognizing gender inequality, the fact that in patriarchal societies, and not just in the global south, as we can see around the world, um, but where patriarchy exists, the likelihood that women will have unequal access to resources and that their chances in life are, uh, are different from men um, has been established. So the World Bank said, we will in our poverty reduction program, be mindful of gender inequality. And they recognize that uh, there is an ableism discrimination that people um, who, experiences of day, daily life may be affected by um, a differential, uh, uh, well, differential, uh, being differentially situated, they may not be able to hear or see or whatever in the same way that they would be discriminated against. So they purposely sought to tinker and adjust the poverty program so they reach out to women and uh, those that are um, well, have disabilities, have special needs. When it came to religious minorities, they did not actively seek to reach out to those minorities in the same way. And unfortunately, what we know about the Sindh province is that there is bonded labor and this bonded labor happens to coincide with the Hindu population, that they are, uh, their experience of deprivation is so acute that they are the ones that are most vulnerable 
to have an intergenerational or a, from family to family, from generation to family, a transfer of indebtedness, their children being born into um, having to uh, work in bonded labor from a very young age. Um, and they also happened to exclude the Christians who like the Hindus because they belong to the scheduled castes. There is that intersection of acute poverty, caste and religious marginality. So what this tells us is that if you exclude people where there is an intertwining of religious marginality and poverty, then you can never ever claim to engage in inclusive development. That is a fraud. I'm not talking about a particular actor, I'm talking about a particular set of practices that we see around the world. Now, does this mean that every single religious minority is suffering from acute poverty? Absolutely not. We, we see the Syrian regime, which is led by the Alawis, and they are a privileged minority. Uh, we see uh, Bahrain, where uh, the, the, Sunni, uh, the, the Sunnis are not a definitive majority. They are a large number, but again, they are in a privileged position. But what we're saying for those that care about social justice and development is you need to purposely look out where those intersections lie just as you did with gender equality over the last 50 years. Now, some people would say, but that is very problematic from a survey perspective. You've raised the issue of surveys. How do we do this? We can't ask people, what faith do you belong to? We can easily, in most cases, I know gender is fluid, but the majority of cases, we, we can see women and men. Uh, yes, gender is fluid in many cases, but I'm talking about the majority here. And, but you can't go up and ask people, what is your faith? Um, and of course, governments would say you are now entering the realm of domestic sovereignty and security. Issues of sectarian relations are issues that are very securitized. But the good news is you don't have to ask anyone what their faith is. The good news is there are different proxies to which you can make sure that you are inclusive, that you are reaching the Hindus who are in bonded labor, that you are reaching the Christians who are the majority um, uh, of those that are involved in sewage works in Pakistan without asking anybody uh, what faith they belong to or what, you know, whether they are of faith or no faith. Mm -hmm. On that paper as well, I think, and connecting back to a, a point you made at the very beginning, which was that this entire project is really being done in an action research mode. <laughs> um, and I think uh, most academic researchers pride themselves on or claim to be uh, truly independent. So people like me who work for the World Bank are somehow compromised because of who we work for, we're captured in some ideological or another <laughs> sort of space. Whereas academics are truly independent, but in a conversation you and I had uh, just before this, you were saying, well, oftentimes uh, those academic researchers are suspects precisely because they're academic researchers. <laughs> and the only people they trust are these people they know who, who we collectively sort of call action researchers. But I think we're, we, we academics tend to be pretty snobbish about this stuff and think, well, we, this, this, we know how to do serious research and the action research is just the, the local people doing the best they can kind of thing. Um, try and help us make it more principled and, and uh, uh, almost play academics at their own game here and sort of say, look, there's a selection bias actually, what we call selection bias, like there's a non, there's a very particular way in which we academics talk to ourselves and talk to each other. 
and we have particular kinds of credibility. We have particular, we exude a certain kind of personality <laughs> and that is readily apprehended by people who aren't part of our tribe, so to speak, that they can tell a, mile, a million miles off. Like here come these very earnest people who are gonna claim to be very independent and just, just here to try and tell an honest story. Uh, but there's there's a lot we 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 are members of a particular tribe entering a very different tribe and a, speak a vernacular that might not be their vernacular. So again, to come back to this sort of question about what what your own engagement with these uh, this whole array of of action researchers that you've uh, called upon to do this kind of work. What's their, in, in formal sort of economics language? What's their comparative advantage? What what can they do that the rest of us with our nice PhDs and, and all the rest of it uh, and our own pretensions about what we uh, claim to be? What 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 do we really learn from an action researcher that we don't learn from somebody else like me or you? <laughs> well, I think the the key issue is honesty at at, at all levels for academics and non academics. I think um, people who are on the margins are able to see uh, what we know, but we don't necessarily always want to say out, which is there's no such thing um, as someone being impartial. We all have our biases. We all have um, our life experiences, which has influenced the way we read the world, the way we engage with the world, including research. Um, this, these are not experiments being held in a laboratory. These are um, human dynamics and, and so forth. And I think this is where feminist academic research has been so powerfully helpful because they've always said um, beyond the veneer of neutrality, uh, there is a great deal of bias. And the only way we can deal with this bias is for us not to make it go away by pretending it's not there, but by simply being honest about it. So they talked about us um, talking about our positionality. How have people perceived us? How are people engaged with us? How are we engaged with them because of where we come from or what, what we are? Uh, and also standpoint, where do we stand on these issues? Um, and just articulating this in our scholarship. Um, and so I think this is the first lesson, whether you're an academic or not an academic, that articulation of how are you approaching this topic? And this is what I loved about um, the wonderful authors of the chapters of these books is that they, they were very open about who they are, where they've come from, what are the limitations and how they have been, been perceived and what are the strength of what they have um, experienced that others uh, of a different position may not have been able to gather. Um, the second point is that um, a lot of the time when we talk about religious inequalities, uh, international actors would say, uh, a lot of the time when we engage with, with international actors, they would say, oh, well, uh, even if you're dealing with people who are marginalized because of the intersection of poverty and, and religious uh, experiences, well, surely their religious experiences um, uh, put them in a very prejudiced position. And the answer is always as if people who are, are who consider themselves secular don't have their own prejudices. I mean, this is this is a situation which we all have our own particularities. Um, but what this research and what these case studies brings is the fact that they are seen as to a large extent trustworthy in the eyes of their interlocutors. And therefore, mm. there isn't the distrust that makes them filter their stories. There isn't the distrust that makes them hear what they think others want to hear. And there isn't the distrust that makes them 
um, uh, want to run away when they're approached by someone. Um, and, and so we do get insights into those daily experiences, but also struggles. And I think what's very interesting is that one of the things that really struck me about all of the, almost all of these case studies, which I never expected at the beginning of um, this journey, was that very few people use the words freedom of original belief or religious equality or inequality or liberty. This is not how they, ex they expressed their journeys um, and find out, find out from the books and the chapters how they talked about these issues because it's very interesting. But I do have one thing that I really want to be very honest about, which is that we still maintained, um, uh, we still sought as an academic publication to be robust and to be rigorous and to maintain high ethical standards in what we covered. Um, and in that spirit, there were some stories which we turned down. There was a story from a particular country where uh, the story was that by bringing women together across different faith and having them engage in a dialogue, um, that they got to understand each other better and the situation was improved. And when we asked for what is the evidence that through this interfaith dialogue, the lives of the communities were improved. And they said, well, we're just telling you so. <laughs> and we said, well, thank you very much, but we can't tell that story. Mm -hmm. uh, there were other cases in which people said, um, uh, through the efforts of the faith leaders, uh, people started uh, using different language and started uh, seeing each other differently. They said, well, that's wonderful, tell us. What, what is the evidence for that? And when they said, well, isn't it enough that faith leaders are having conversations when they used to hate each other? And we said, well, actually it isn't because the people we are concentrating on are the communities. You can be besties across different faiths as leaders, but that may not necessarily mean anything on the ground. So when we asked these hard questions and people were not able to tell us from their stories, what they can account for, we said, well, we're very sorry, we can't include these stories. So yes, these are action researchers, but rigor, robustness, um, validating the data, the credibility of the findings were things that we took very seriously, not, not, not to use these words just for the purpose of them, but for us, it was a question of ethics. Mm -hmm. We wanted to um, engage in ethical practices in how, um, uh, in how we bring together these stories. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.